Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Alexa Von Tobel. Alexa is founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital and the New York Times bestselling author of Financially Fearless and Financially Forward. Inspired Capital is a $500 million early stage venture capital firm that invests across categories of innovation. Alexa founded the firm in 2019 alongside Penny Pritzker to support the next wave of exceptional entrepreneurs. Prior to Inspired, Alexa founded LearnVest in 2008 with the goal of helping people make progress on their money. After raising nearly $75 million in venture capital, LearnVest was acquired by Northwestern Mutual in May 2015 in one of the biggest fintech acquisitions of the decade. Following the acquisition, Alexa joined the management team of Northwestern Mutual as the company's first ever chief digital officer, overseeing digital strategy. She later assumed the role of chief innovation officer through which she oversaw Northwestern Mutual's venture arm. Alexa has appeared on the cover of Forbes magazine, been interviewed on NPR's How I Built This, which was a great episode, by the way, and has been featured in a wide variety of publications from the New York Times to Vogue. She's a member of the 2016 Class of Henry Crown Fellows and an inaugural member of President Obama's Ambassadors for Global Entrepreneurship. She's also been honored with numerous recognitions, including Fortune's 40 Under 40, Fortune's Most Powerful Woman, Forbes 30 Under 30, Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30, and World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader. Originally from Florida, Alexa attended Harvard College and Harvard Business School before settling in New York City, where she currently resides with her husband, Cliff Ryan, and their three children. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Alexa Von Tobel. Hey, Alexa. Thank you so much for having me. Feel free to shorten that bio. I've been honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's good to just relish in it all. It's so fun. I feel like with a lot of the guests that I have on, they don't ever think about their journey. Like a lot of the times it's the assistant sending the bio and they don't ever think about it anymore. They're just like, okay, let's get to it. And so I love, especially because we talk about in the show about the journey, I love like forcing guests to really listen to it because I feel like so often, like you don't really ever go look back at your bio, you know, you just kind of send it as a formality. Uh, yes, that's right. Well, first of all, I feel old. <laughs> it's been a really fun last decade. That's awesome. Well, before we dive into your 20s, I do like to start every show with a bit of a fun question, an icebreaker, if you will. What is something fun or new that you learned in the past week? It could be from a conversation you had. It could be a book you're reading. It could be something tech related or not. Really up to you, but something new that you learned in this past week. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm trying to pick which topic. You know, I'm a parent of three little kids, so I feel like I've learned. I've actually been reading some like really thoughtful parenting advice and books and things like that. And so I just feel like I've learned a lot about 
parenting in the last week. But on the work front, you know, we're, I, I run Inspired Capital. We're an early stage uh, fund, uh, generalist fund. So we look at all categories. I've learned a lot about some really interesting categories um, that we've been looking at, you know, the future of online e-commerce, the future of automation. And so, so that's been like on the work front. That's awesome. What are you most excited about when it comes to the future of automation? Is there something in particular that you think is really different or something maybe you didn't expect in your research? Is there something that like made you kind of perk your ears? And I say that because, so I also work in venture and I, I was doing something on car marketplaces and I learned so much more about cars than I, I really ever wanted to know about cars. <laughs> I'm not a big car person. So was there anything interesting in that, in those learnings that you can share with us about the future? No, I mean, I think it's just amazing to think about how much automation really will be able to do things that we take for granted from robots will be able to paint your nails to robots will literally, you know, self-driving lawnmowers will, we have, we backed a company called Scythe, for example, will be able to go and lawnmow huge distances, which is actually better for the planet because then you have electric mowers, not gas mowers, and that's better and better utilization of people's time. You're going to have robotics be able to pick you know huge huge truck care you know the the cargo on trucks and put them on top of ships and these sort of things where you just realize that robots can do it better and more safely and and that that future is you know it is imminent so again everything from rather than a manicure costing 15 dollars can cost six because a robot can actually do it and just you know obviously that means displacing some jobs. And so there's downsides to that, but there, there's also just a lot of upside. So those sort of things I think are really interesting. But then when all that exists, what's the brains behind it? What's the storage of the data? What does that look like? And what supports that automation? Um, those are the sort of things we thought about. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, it's so funny. I went to dinner at a restaurant recently and I didn't have a waiter. I had like a robot cart, like bring me my food. And it was sort of one of those, like, you use a QR code to scan, you order your food, and then there was, you never met with a waiter or a waitress at all the whole time. And it's so funny, I think, also the attitude and the psychology around automation is really interesting, because, like, I, for example, was, like, very turned off by it. I was like, what's going on? Where's the person? Oh, my gosh, this robot's giving me food. What if something is a little bit wrong? What if it's the wrong table? So I think it'll take a bit for us to get used to, but I had my experience recently with that, and it was, it was definitely wild. Okay, so let's let's chat about your 20s. Obviously, you you started your your journey at Harvard. Were there any really formative experiences, you know, before you went off to college that you would say showed that you wanted to go into business or finance or or venture capital when you were younger before college? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would just say um, lots of things obviously happened that were formative for me um, growing up, and I think, you know, some of the most positive were. I have two older brothers and they kind of always looked after me and took me everywhere. And I think I did everything from help make me tough and brave and build my confidence. And so without them, I definitely would not be here. Additionally, I was an, I was an athlete growing up. I was a gymnast, you know, early on, I, you know, I went to like Camp Caroli and trained with Bella Caroli and his team uh, and, and did it really intensely. And then I ended up actually diving platform and springboard my senior year and was ninth in the state and things like that, which I'd never started diving until that year. And I think just the concept of training really, really, really hard to do things well was just a muscle that I used over and over again. And I think just the the equation in my brain was always extreme hard work, 
good things happen, extreme hard work, good things happen. And so I think that is a really productive one. And now, you know, today, back to my parenting, you know, the growth mindset and all these things that we've learned psychologically, which is that, you know, you want to teach kids that hard work is what gives the great output, right? It's not just Alexa, you're smart or Alexa, you're very, very bright. It's no, no, you did hard work. And that's why these good things happen because kids can control how much hard work they do. And so I think that was a really formative just lesson. And it's an equation that's in my head and very much, you know, some advice I have to everyone in their twenties is there's no shortcuts in life. And I, and I say that not in the negative way, in the positive way, which is just assume that you have to do the hard work. Just assume you have to work hard And by doing that, you're going to outwork a lot of people because a lot of people don't want to put in that effort. And it's one thing you can really rely on, which is, and and so I really trust hard work. It's sort of a comforting place for me because I know if I, if I do it, I don't know everything I want to have happen will happen, but good things will happen. Yeah. And very cool to hear that you were such an athlete as well when you were younger. I think that's, we see that a lot with people that work so hard. It's like, what are those early examples of like training hard for something? A lot of the times it does happen to be athletics. How do you, so you, you made a comment, which I agree with, you know, a lot of the times when you're in your twenties, if just being smart or just wanting something does not get it for you, how do you balance the extreme hard work sacrifice kind of at all costs with the mental health piece of being in your twenties of, you know, friendship transitions and geographic transitions and, and all of that? Like, what is your, what is your stance on that? Has it changed at all over time? Is the way that you did it, the way that you recommend other people do it? It's something that I find interesting with people who work so hard. Like, do they think that that's kind of the only way and totally fair if yes, or is there a balance you wish you had, or you recommend other people have? I would say that I am really careful because I don't want people to just think like work 24 hours a day, have no life, like be crazy um, is ever going to be a recipe for success. I mean, I think one of the biggest sort of balancing mechanisms to my work ethic is I love my friends. I love my family. I want to hang out with people. And in fact, I'm a true extrovert where some people, you know, after a lot of work, want to go to sleep and just be alone. I, after really hard, intense day of work, want to go be with friends. And that, that for me is, and I've always used that as a pretty, pretty key ingredient to happiness, which is just being normal, being with my buddies and having fun. And I think it's a really good antidote to a terrible day of work. You know, something really bad happens. The first thing I want to do is just be like, hey, who wants to come meet me and hang? I just need to get out of my head and not think about the, the struggles of things I'm focusing on. So I would just say you got to balance your work ethic. And one thing that really does go through my head, I, I have a motto, which is just to give you, my, my motto is I'm running a marathon. You know, right now I'm building inspired capital. And I really do think of myself as this is the thing I'm building for the next 20, 30 plus years. That's a marathon. And I'm committed to that longer term unless, you know, something crazy happens. And then on the flip side, I do view it as, I do, I'm really good at focusing on increments of days, which is today I need to give 110% and I can go home. And then tomorrow I'll give 110%. So I'd like to break things up into little units. And I think my brain does that very naturally, which is, all right, you know, Saturday morning, I'm going to do these quick things. And think I take things in bite sizes, which is obviously the key to running marathons is, you know, think of each mile as half a mile or, you know, four quarter miles. And it, it just helps your brain process what you're doing. And if you try to think too far out, it's too intense. So in short, I do think of myself as an endurance athlete. And I think that applies to my work ethic in, in work. But at the same time, you can be an endurance athlete and you can take breaks. And I, I really do look at the overall arc of I've got to be mentally fit and healthy to be able to finish the marathon. So burnout 
you know, I've probably been at risk of burnout a few times. I was honestly more in high school, if anything, before I like really learned some more balance. And I will just say, I think the key ingredient to balance is happiness. Like if you're really, really happy, you can almost do anything. It's the times when you've been really unhappy. It's really hard. It's really hard for you to do things. So I'm grateful that I'm a pretty happy person. I'm really grateful for my family and my friends and, and feel privileged every day to get to do what I do. And want to do my part to make the world a better place. And I feel really lucky that I get to do that. Yeah. So many gems in there. I love this framing of it being a marathon, not a sprint, but still having the small steps perspective. I think that's really, really strong. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's always important to hear from people that do a lot and build really big things to talk about how they stay balanced. So you were an amazing athlete and then you end up going to Harvard. Did you go for your sport or did you go separate from that. And I know that you ended up majoring in psych and romance languages, which are kind of interesting. Can you tell me more about why those, that uh, course load? And I actually also saw there was a thesis on Bhutan's development, which again, another very interesting thing. Not sure how much it comes up now when you're um, automation studies, but can you tell me more about like, you know, why did you go to Harvard and why did you pick the majors that you did? So... Uh, I went to Harvard and then after I applied, I was really fortunate. I actually got the number one spot on their diving team. They really only have one spot a year. And I actually dove at Harvard uh, my freshman and sophomore year. And so the one that was, uh, and then I got injured and decided, you know, hurling myself off platforms is probably not going to be what I do for the rest of my life. And so I uh, just decided, you know, my back is actually more important. Um, uh, and and so then like threw myself into everything else at Harvard from acting to women in business organizations and just had honestly one of the best times. I studied, uh, I started studying mind brain behavior and ended up with an honors degree in psychology. And I worked in the happiness lab, which was, I think one of the more transformational things that I studied Two people, uh, Tal Ben-Shahar and Sean Aker and Philip Stone. Those were my, my advisors. I, I, had just like a profound impact on me and the power of positive psychology. And I think just the punchline is I've been a very positive person. I've, you know, unfortunately faced some adversity in my life and I just am a cup is not only half full, but kind of maybe overflowing personality. And I think I really learned a lot about just how important positivity is to your future. So actually for everyone out there in your twenties, I am actively teaching my children that a positive attitude is the most important ingredient to your day. And it's free and nobody can take it away from you and you can have it all on your own. And it's literally just training yourself to start the day with gratitude. And so, so again, back to my studies and what I learned, but I start every day and actually we do this as a family, all five of us, including my little three-year-old, we say every morning, what's one thing you're grateful for? And we all go around and we do it. And it sound, may sound like really simple and really cheesy, but in fact, when your brain is holding gratitude, it's very hard to feel other emotions since you're literally retraining those pathways to think positive feelings. So I worked in the happiness lab, learned a lot of really interesting things. And then my thesis was Bhutan King decided to focus on gross national happiness as opposed to GDP. He said, why is the measurement of a country not the well-being of the people and their life satisfaction? And so I was blown away by such a reshaping of a value system, which is like, in America, we focus on like export and product as opposed to like well-being of society 
And so I went to Bhutan uh, actually with my my brother and had like the adventure of a lifetime, just learning about a totally different way of thinking and ended up writing my thesis on it. Wow. That is so cool and unexpected. Now I have to ask, hopefully this is a very obvious question for you, but as you had that experience writing that thesis, how do you think about that when you look at InVenture now? And obviously a lot of venture is about returns. It's about economics. It's about numbers. How do you think about the, let's call it the global happiness rating of the companies you invest in? And like, is that something that you factor in? Like at scale, how does this impact the customers and the employees of this company? Is that something that you feel like because of that experience you look at companies through that lens now? Yeah, it's sort of a natural or at least to me, it's very obvious. But for the most part, when you're innovating in innovation, for the most part, um, you know, you have your products that maybe don't make the world a better place, like a jewel and things like that, where, you know, maybe those investors at some point felt like this was a step forward and then we learned it wasn't. But like, for the most part in innovation, particularly products that I look at all day, it's how do we innovate with technology to make bank accounts cheaper for everybody so that they're not fees? Or how do we think about building a digital health platform that allows people to get access to their doctors for far more affordable instantly, right? So you're like innovating, innovating. It, it's, it's, it, it's better for whoever's on the other end of it almost in all ways. And so one of the great things about innovating is if you really are customer obsessed, you're not trying to make the customer less happy because otherwise you don't have a product. And so one of the things I do love about this job is that you very much have the benefit of true innovators are trying to make the world better. They're trying to make customers happier. And then if you actually can build very, very successful businesses doing that, and, and I'll give you an example. I have a company called Hobby in Latin America where the founder, for somebody to sell their home often takes a year and you have to put poster boards in your window. And in the United States, we totally think that's insane because we have Zillow and all these things and Trulia and you can see what homes are potentially worth and versus comps. And you can click, get a broker and sell your house as quickly as you would like to. And so she's bringing that to Latin America. And it's the biggest asset that most individuals in Latin America have to their financial balance sheet and helping them transact quicker. It's like a blowout success with customers. And this is a company that could be worth lots and lots and lots and many billions of dollars if they execute properly. So for me, that's like a win, win, win. So I'm, again, that's one of the reasons why I love innovation is you're often innovating in a way where it's powerfully winning for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think those are the big leaps in the innovation. Like I see sometimes there's these little small tweaks to things that kind of already exist. They're just slightly different. And I'm like, ah, is that really needed? Is that really that different? But it sounds like a lot of what you guys invest into and, and even looking through your portfolio, it's really like big game changers. And I think, like you said, that really is like a big delta in happiness when you do that. Okay, so you graduate from Harvard with this positive psychology degree. You've done this really interesting trip and thesis on Bhutan. And then you decide to go work at Morgan Stanley as an analyst. Talk me through at what point was business on your radar? It sounds like you did women in business at Harvard, so probably while you were in school. And why that role at Morgan Stanley? I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, so interestingly, I'd actually worked at Insight Venture Partners. Uh, one of the big venture funds um, run by some pretty awesome people in New York. And I got a full-time job offer and I wanted to go work there. And then Morgan Stanley had already given me an offer and they offered me more money. And, you know, when you're 21 and I knew I was going to business school and I knew I wanted to be able to pay for business school, um, they literally just said, we'll pay you more. And I remember being like, oh, 
it's really hard because I know that like this means that, you know, business school is very, very easy to pay for then. And so I ended up at Morgan Stanley and nights and weekends when I was there, you know, it was the first time I was earning a real paycheck, real money. And I remember that's literally where I started Learn Best. I said to myself, I'm very good at math. I'm very numbers oriented. You know, here I am in this really hard group to get in and finance. And I have no idea how to manage my own personal finances. And I'm, because I was young and, you know, it was my own savings. I was like, nobody wants to advise me because I don't have enough money to be in a place where someone would, and and it was really simple at that point. I was like, wow, where is the place for me to go and get advice? And I literally learned best was born that day. Wow. Very, very cool. I think it's, it's still something that I think we can always be better at. You can never be educating people too much on their personal finances, especially women. And I think very cool that you were like, if all the people, I'm the one who should know how to do this. And you still didn't. So you're, you're at Morgan Stanley. I know that you had you, you, the idea for LearnVest was born then, but you did do a quick stint at Harvard Business School. Was that with the intention of really building LearnVest into what it became? Or what were your, what was your thought process behind having the idea at Morgan Stanley and then still following through on business school? Can you tell me a little bit about that transition? So I got into HBS when I was a senior in college and I was one of these sort of guinea pigs. There was no two plus two program. I was sort of the, the guinea pig for it. And I was allowed to defer. And I actually called to ask if I could defer again for a third year. And they said, you can, but that's it. And I had started LearnVest at this point and it takes two years to really go build a business. I knew that you cannot figure out if a business is working in one year. And so I was like, I can't defer, if I defer third year, and then they were like, and if you don't come, you can't come because I deferred. And so I was sort of in this tough spot where I was like, okay, I have to go now and I'll just do the hard work and I'll do both. And I just, that will be a big trade-off and I'll make trade-offs and I won't be able to get to socialize as much. And I had a boyfriend, my, my now husband at the time, and I kind of said, I'm going to put my head down and have to work really hard. And he's the best supporter on the planet. And he was like, sounds great. And so I did that my first semester. And then Lehman Brothers went under. And I literally said, when the world zigs, you have to zag. This is the world's best time on the planet to go launch this business. And I have to do it right now. And so I literally walked into the admissions office and said, I'm going to drop out. And I found a loophole, which is if you finished in good standing for one semester, I could take five years off. And I was like, that's perfect. Because now I've locked in but I've gone to HBS, I could take a five-year loophole where I can now really go swing for this business. And if it doesn't work at any point, I can come back. So I now have backup plan and I now get to use all my contacts and all my relationships from HBS to, you know, hopefully make the company better. So I always advise people to like, life is not black and white. The best decisions happen in the gray. And Just remember really hard decisions. There's always a way to try to figure out. And I think that's another thing. My brain, how to to figure out the way to make the most of what you're trying to achieve often means getting really creative. And so that, that was sort of the creativity. I love that. You found the loophole. The hard work led to the loophole. How did you think about supporting yourself during that time? You like, you know, obviously you had made good money for a couple of years at Morgan Stanley you were building something to better understand your personal finances. How did you think about making money and supporting yourself for those hypothetical five years? What did that look like? I think that was literally why I was client number one. I literally was customer number one for LearnVest because I had to put together a financial plan that basically said, you know, I, I invested all of my own savings and I didn't want my family to help me. I, I was, I'm very independent. I was like, I 
I always joke to my family. I said, you're already so invested in this because you're invested in me. And I just need to know that you can be there if God forbid this all blows up to like hug me (laughs) because I'm pretty sad. And so I invested $75,000, which was basically a bunch of the bonus that I had gotten uh, at Morgan Stanley. And then I had enough money to be able to make it until I could potentially raise money to start paying myself with the company, like, you know, some sort of salary to live off of. And so I always joked, I had a Cinderella moment where if by X date I couldn't raise money, it was like the party was over. I got to go back and I got to leave the ball. And that was the first financial plan that I used to begin to build the software for LearnVest. That's Amazing. Client number one. It's always the best way. I want to just bring it back quickly to one comment you said previously was when everyone zigs, you should zag. And I think that's especially timely now because obviously markets volatile. There's a lot of what's happening with the recession. How do you think about this time right now being similar to 2008 when you started LearnVest? And like, what is your advice for entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting something or even just everyday people? Like, during these times of volatility when everyone's zigging, how do you zag? Um, and what is your advice for them? I think that the way, so the question of how to follow, how to manage volatility, how to manage stress, how to manage, I think that's the most important question, Erica, that you've asked today. And there's this book called Getting Comfortable with Uncertainty that I read at some point. And, I, and just hear me out on this for a second. Life is uncertain. You are never going to have days where something is not uncertain in your life. And that may be something you're worried about with your husband or a partner, something that you're worried about with, will this house come through? Can we, do we get to move in? Am I, do I have my job? Am I stable? Worse, health issues, health issues for family members. And I always joke that like, there's no day where every single thing is running green, right? There's always something that's uncertain. And I think One of the things that just by nature of, I lost a parent when I was younger, you know, I've had to go through a lot of of hardship. And I think the resiliency of just being comfortable with uncertainty in in stress is something that I learned, unfortunately, through through, necessity at a young age. And I think it's one of the, the greatest tools that I have in my toolkit, which is that a lot can get thrown at me. And I I quickly can sort and be like, not worth it, not worth it, not worth it, worth it. And figuring out like what is worth stressing about. And, you know, I I joke a lot, a lot with people all over in my life where I'm like, are we really stressing over this right now? Come on. Like, and it's just, you know, that perspective I think is invaluable. And so one of the greatest things I would tell people, and I actually have interviewed so many CEOs on the topic of stress and uncertainty and volatility and all the things around us. And I said, how do you get through it? And there's the obvious exercise, sleep, you know, uh, drink less, like all of that. Do those things. But I also think perspective, which is a free tool, is invaluable. And so one of the founders I once interviewed would read wartime books where people were like really not sure if they were going to live. And like it just puts it in perspective. You're like, are you going to live tomorrow? Is your family living tomorrow? Okay. Like, um, and so, you know, I often look at my husband and I'll be like, roof over our head, food on the table, everyone's healthy. Can't really stress over this. Like, let's move on. And I think it's you know, it's a real muscle. And by the way, I want to say, it's not that I don't ever get stressed. So I also don't want to like paint this picture of being like a superhuman human who never cares. I get stressed too. And in those moments, I like have people around me that can say like, Alexa, roof over your head. And I'm like, correct. Thank you. But I do think that that's a pretty important muscle to flex. Yeah, absolutely. I I have maybe a bit of a tough question. 
because I completely agree with you. And as you're talking about this, I think the gratitude is the root of everything you're saying. Do you think that it's possible? So you obviously you experienced the loss of your father when you were younger, which was unexpected and horrible and heartbreaking. I also lost my father at a young age. Yeah. So when when you think about gratitude and perspective, do you think you can achieve that level of it that you have now without having experienced that and that level of trauma? And I think that's something that I struggle with as I look at some friends who, you know, and don't get me wrong, we all experience micro traumas and things that not everyone knows about, but there's a different level once you've gone through something or you've lost someone or it's like there's been a health scare that I almost don't know you can totally replicate. Like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. And well, first of all, I'll say, I think the mind is a muscle. And I think that all of us start in different places, have different strengths and weaknesses around uh, our moods, our attitudes, all of that, right? But I really do believe, I mean, it's fact, the mind is muscle. And so you can train it in all these positive ways, back to positive psychology. If you start every day by doing something, an unexpected thing for a human where you get no benefit, one nice thing every day for somebody else, guess what? Your mood boosts, you feel better, you're happier. It's literally just a free thing you do for five minutes for somebody else that's kind to them that helps their life be better. So there's all these things that you can do to actually build the muscle. And what I'll say is, you know, I think going through loss, extreme loss, like I did of losing a parent at a young age, I think it gives you this gift, which is you realize this is not the dress rehearsal of your life. This is life. It's one shot. This is not the dress rehearsal. And so I I do carry that with me every day in a way where, one, I'm really not that fearful of much. I'm like, who cares if I fail? Who cares if I get it wrong? Who cares if somebody doesn't like me? I'm not living for them. I'm I'm living for my my little unit, my little family. And I think that that kind of gives me a a lot of strength that I think is is a really powerful skill set. And I do think that other people can have the same level of gratitude and resilience that we have I certainly don't think you have to go through to the depths of things that you and I've been through to be able to be grateful. But, and I certainly met people that are just naturally very, very resilient, but it is something we can all get better at. And so I think the punchline here is you don't have to go through extreme trauma to be able to be resilient and grateful and positive. And there's lots and lots of many things that you can do. And there's a bazillion books out there that you can pick up that can help you learn the skill set. But in life's not that complicated at, at its core. Like, it's just not. A lot of the things that we spend our time stressing about are just not worth it. And a mentor of mine most recently said, you should live every day as though you only have six months left to live. And if you knew that right now, how would you live? And I think we should live every day like that, every single day. If you're going to die in six months and you knew that for a fact, what would you do differently today? And why aren't you doing it? And I think my husband and I talked about that reminder, and I think it was a really beautiful one. And we were like, that's the only way we want to live. And it's the only way we want to live with our kids. Yeah. Wow. I love this idea that you don't have to go through the big trauma. You can do the small exercises. And I love the six months. You can get very in your head and be very, it's harder in practice, but I, it's very motivating and I appreciate it. How do you, um, we'll keep talking about your 20s, but I do, you keep bringing up your husband, who it sounds like he's an amazing thought partner for you and such a great you know, it sounds like since very early when you said you wanted to learn vest as someone who is hoping to find someone one day and wants to achieve a lot myself as a woman in business and venture. And 
like, how did you think about finding a partner? What are the things that you think are absolutely necessary for a woman specifically who wants to achieve a lot? And how is like he, I mean, it sounds like he's continued to show up after all these years. Any thoughts or advice there? I'm, I'm just curious. You keep mentioning him. Yeah. First of all, I, I think I have one of the best husbands on the planet and I really do. He's just a really, really wonderful human on every level. And I think one of the things that's really great about us is we really are a team and we kind of approach everything we do is we're both in it and we both do it all together. And, you know, I was the sole founder of LearnBass, but I will tell you, he was my co-founder in every way. He lived through every exciting and dark moment um, right there with me and was helping advise me. And so I think just he's, he's a real teammate and that doesn't mean, you know, it's trusting the teamsmanship and like knowing you really, really have a partner in, in all things for your life. That means your family life, your friend life, your work life, um, your health life. And I think that's probably the most important thing to make sure you have in a partner is a real partner. And it sounds so simple, but it's, I think oftentimes people don't think that through. And, you know, I'm just really fortunate. I, I have somebody in my life who is more proud of me than I think any other human that I know. Maybe my mom. My mom. My mom may, you know, go head to head with him. But no, you know, he he truly cherishes the things I accomplish and feels pride in them. And I actually think it's one of the things, you know, he he loves to see me swing big and kind of figure things out. And by source, by the way, he also has a fabulously big fund and does incredible things in climate tech and is honestly like more successful than me. And so it, it's always. He thinks everything I do is so great. But no, find a partner. Find a real, real partner. Yeah, and it sounds like I think what's refreshing is that he was like that always. Because I think that's one thing that a lot of... His dad was the lawyer who drafted the document for LearnBest when we were just wow. dating. Um, my mom was the president on paper. His dad was the lawyer. And, and literally, that was 2007, May. We'd only been dating for six months. Wow. And you were 24, 25. I mean, you were on, like, was, you guys were mid-20s. I was 23. I was 22, 23. No, he literally was day one. It was like he turned the lights on. Okay. So let's just, I need to just reiterate that as a reminder for everyone. Like they can be like that at 22 and 23 for, I, I there's a lot of ambitious women that listen to this podcast. And I think sometimes people think people change and all that. They should be like that at 22, 23. By the way, yeah. he was like 17. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. If you met my husband, he's just one of these really unique humans. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing more about that. I think it's just, it's really important to talk to people like you about your experience with your partner. Cause I think the professional stuff is amazing and we got to get to that. And, but I think the personal psych, the positive psychology and the husband and all that stuff, it, it really shines through as something unique about you. Okay. So you're building LearnVest, you're crushing it. And that's a lot of what your twenties are. What was like, would you say when you were done with your time at LearnVest, what would you say when you look back on it now as like the biggest lesson, biggest learning you had through that experience and anything that you recommend for, I mean, maybe it's, it's finance related. Like we've got a lot of women in their twenties that are <laughs> figuring out their own personal finances. Is there something that you learned, maybe customer discovery that you can share with us here about building LearnVest? I will say a few things. Number one in no particular order, I luckily was intuitive enough to know that the only way the company would be successful is if I got better. And I was terrible at a bunch of things, like really terrible and learning to like be an executive and run a company. So many things that I was actually getting better at. And so I had executive coaches and I had all these things. And so that was probably the biggest thing. It was just like this really clear understanding of self-improvement. Second thing that I got right, but I cannot reiterate is the most important decision is I was fortunate to bring people on to be my teammates that were 
really, really experienced and talented and smarter than me and had more experience. And I was smart enough to shut up and listen to them <laughs> on the majority of things. And I, you know, there's a bunch of people, my first cousin, John, uh, this woman named Ainsley, there's a bunch of these amazing humans, our CTO Rishi, where I, I, I didn't micromanage them. And I just said, you run and then tell me what you need. And I think that was a lesson that like I kept getting better at. I, I wasn't perfect at it when I started and I just kept leaning into that. And keep in mind, I was building a company in 20, 2007, 2008, 2009. There wasn't like tombs of material about how to be a CEO out there, like barely anything. Like the hard thing about hard things didn't get written until like sometime later. So I think just the recog this, this, it was scary for me, but to realize the only way I could ever be talented was to be critical of myself. And to get better at the things I wasn't great at and to give people the space to say, shut up, Alexa, that you're wrong. That is the wrong answer. And people need the space to give you feedback. And so, so that was, I think the biggest thing I, again, I, my husband is like an absolute genius. And so people around me that I could say, I didn't, I often assumed I had a pretty good answer, but that it wasn't perfect. And so I often was pretty good at going to people all around me to say, what do you think? What would you edit? What am I doing wrong? How do you think about this? And I think that takes a confidence. I didn't feel like I always had to have the answers. And I think that's a really, and, and in fact, this, you know, one of the people on my management team was amazing to me of being like, you don't have to have the answers. Like we're in this with you to help you figure them out. So that camaraderie I think was there. You know, your twenties, you know, so little, but the time I'm in my thirties now, I look back at my twenties and I'm like, God, there's so many things. Like I want to cringe sometimes where you're just like, just be aware that you don't know it all and that's okay. And just focus on getting better and surrounding yourself by great people. That's the most important thing I, I can say that I learned and that I continue to learn and there's a constant in life. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're always, always going to learn to get better. I talk to people that are like, I've had 60 somethings on the show and they're like, I certainly don't have all the answers. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you not have the answers yet? None of us ever do. Thank you for sharing that. Are there any like quick hit finance tips that you have from your time that you felt like went a very long way? Is it like, just get set up a budget? Is it like, you know, don't spend more than you make? Is it get a software and like load your stuff on there and actually do something? Like, what is your tip? I have a few things and I want everyone to just do these. Don't think twice. Tonight. <laughs> Number one. Tonight. Do it tonight. tonight. I want you to max out your 401k and your IRA every year. And I know that's really hard, but you should do everything in your power to do that because the earlier you save for retirement, the faster it grows for you. And it's just that. And it's much easier to save for retirement in your 20s than in your 30s when you start to have kids and a mortgage and all these things. So save, save, save. Live beneath your means every day of your life. Every day of your life, live beneath your means. In your career, don't worry about title. Worry about what are you learning? And you should be nervous every day when you go to work. If you're not a little nervous every day when you go to work, then you're complacent. It means you're not learning and you're not putting yourself out of your comfort zone. I promise you, I live outside of my comfort zone almost every day. Almost every day I do something that makes me a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous. And I think that's where you grow and that's where genuine growth comes from. Surround yourself by people that you trust and love and that trust and love you. And I call it L-I-T-T-P, lean into the pain, lean into feedback. Let people shred you. Let people tell you what you're terrible at. And listen and know that the people that actually tell you those things actually care about you. So never shoot the messenger. Wow. Those are some good ones. Okay. So I think everyone, because I'm a big like words are amazing, but action is much better. So like tonight, 
everyone like let's internalize those. If the job isn't the thing, if you're complacent, let's think about it. Setting up the 401k and the IRAs and all the things. Thank you for those, those quick hits. That's great. All right. So second to last question, because I want to be mindful of time here. Why venture now? Why venture next? I, I'm biased. I obviously think venture is the best, but why is venture the next chapter, the next 20 to 30 year game for you versus starting your own thing versus going to be some big CEO at another financial company? Yeah. Keep in mind, this is starting my own thing, right? Yeah, it so, is. It's a startup. It's kind yeah, of a startup. Yeah. I'm running a startup all over again. No, I'm genuinely building the fund that I wish existed for me back when I was 22. And I just operate from a place there where I'm back to being customer number one. I, every time we talk to a founder, I remember being them and how I wish that my investors uh, went to the mat for me. And that level of kind of commitment and in, in, in dedication. And then, as I said, you know, my husband, who's just the luckiest, most important ingredient in my life, once said to me, and he's actually nights and weekends, I was advising founders and investing and like, actually, I was joyful doing it. I was having the time of my life. And he literally said to me, I think you should do this for a living because you would do it for free. And it was like that obvious light bulb that had gone off because for eight years, I've been investing for fun and loving it and so happy. And I figured out, so the last just piece of advice somebody once said, they said, figure out what you're really, really exceptionally talented at figure out what you love to do and do it as soon as you can in your life. That's it. What are you exceptionally talented at that you also absolutely love to do and do it as soon as you, like not that complicated. That's what you should do for your job. And so that's sort of the filter that I brought to this. So that's how I ended up here. I love it. You're very motivating. I think a lot of 20 somethings can get a little complacent and be like, I'll do that later. I'll do that, you know, when I'm in my thirties or my forties. But I really love this approach you take of like, do it sooner. You might have six months to live. There's an urgency to the way you talk, which I think is very, very motivating. Okay. So last question. I could keep picking your brain forever, but this is a question we ask all of our guests. And obviously a lot of this conversation, you've given different gems of advice, but if there is a singular piece of advice that you could give to all 20 somethings, men, women, entrepreneurs, not, what is like that one piece of advice you really hope they take away? Live your own life on your own terms. And I think one thing that we often do is we live our lives for somebody else, somebody else's judgment, somebody else's wall, somebody else's, you know, bar, but it's your life. You only live once. And if you only have six months to live, how'd you live? And I think that that's just a very clear thing for you to think about. And I think oftentimes we care a lot about what other people think. And it's not to say like, I'm a robot who like doesn't care about other people. I really care about other people. You just get to this point where you have this like very still confidence where you realize you've got to do you like you've got to live the the life that it, all of us have very different strengths and weaknesses and alignment. And, and I think you want to live for what is an aligned vision for yourself and stay committed to that. And, and, and so just what I would say is stop caring what other people think as soon as you can. It's just a, it's a very freeing place to be. And it doesn't mean do bad things. It means live your own life. Yeah. Especially if you've only got six months. I love it. Well, Alexa, thank you so much for being here. Could you tell everyone where they can follow you on socials? And then also, I know you've got this amazing podcast that you've been working on, The Founders Project. Can you just let everyone know where they can find you and your podcast and anything you're up to at Inspired? Yeah. Um, so first, Alexa Von Tobel on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. You can message me. I'm happy to chat with anybody, give any advice, et cetera. If you're building a company, check out inspired.com, inspiredcapital.com. Come check us out. Send us your pitches. We'd love to hear about them. We invest in uh, tech companies all around the country, early stage. 
And then finally, you know, just I am so grateful uh, for you guys having me on. This has been a ton of fun and you're a fabulous interviewer. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So excited to have you here. And everyone check out her, her podcast as well, because I know that they're doing amazing interviews too. Well, thank you so much, Alexa, for your time. It was so great chatting. Thank you so much. Honored to be here. Bye. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.